0: We return as our text today to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 and we take up the second half of this verse where we left off last Lord's Day, continuing with this great gospel text that tells us why Jesus suffered and died, the grand purpose for the suffering death of Jesus. Last Sunday we took up three aspects of this verse and God's word and today we take up three additional aspects. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. The three aspects that we're going to look at today is, number one, the penalty that was satisfied, number two, the accomplishment that was certified, and number three, the reconciliation that was accomplished. The penalty that was satisfied is indicated by two words or phrases in this text. First of all, the word suffered, and secondly, the word put to death. We are told, first of all, that Christ suffered, and then we are told that Christ was put to death. Now, you probably need to know that some Bibles say Christ died for sins rather than Christ suffered for sins, and it probably would be helpful to know that there is a manuscript variant that causes some to follow one family of manuscripts which say suffered, and another family of manuscripts which say died. It should be obvious that there's not a great deal of difference, for the fact is he suffered unto death. And the rest of the text also makes that clear, and of course all of the New Testament makes that very clear. But I think it probably ought to be said that the word suffer to me seems to have a stronger claim Upon this text, then the word died for a couple of reasons. And the first and the most important one is that the word suffered, I think, fits better into the whole context. And we looked last Sunday at the very reason why Peter wrote this text, and it was in connection with the suffering of the saints of God. And it was a way of encouraging God's people who are suffering by reminding them that Christ also suffered. And so the suffering that we endure is not to be thought strange. In fact, it is to be understood as part and parcel of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, which is exactly what Peter told us in chapter 2. That well-known text about following in Christ's steps was saying exactly the same thing. We are to follow his steps in suffering. That's the point, not what would... Jesus do at a ball game and figure that out and follow his steps. But in the context, what it's saying is that Christ suffered and we are to follow his steps into suffering. And now that's what Peter is telling us again in chapter 3 and verse 18. And so for that reason, first of all, I think the word suffered has the stronger claim for the proper translation, actually for the proper wording of the text in the original, And then secondly, I think it's helpful to know that Peter uses this word suffer 12 times in the first epistle of Peter, but he uses the word died nowhere else. That's not conclusive by any means, but again, it points, I think, to the fact that Peter is emphasizing suffering and undoubtedly did so again in our text for today, which tells us that Christ suffered. And the word suffered, of course, a broader word than death because it includes death. He suffered Unto death, like Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient unto death. He became obedient in all things, even up to and including death, the death of the cross. And likewise, he suffered many things, even including, up to and including the suffering of the crucifixion with its excruciating pain and suffering. So number one, Christ suffered, but number two, Christ was put to death. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death, being put to death. And what does that mean? That means that he died. And what does that mean? That means that he suffered everything that death means in reference to mankind. Whatever death means for us, that's what it meant for him. Because That's what he was doing. He took upon him flesh. He took upon him humanity so that he could enter into our suffering, enter into our death, bear the penalty for our sins. And so whatever death means for me and for you, then that's what it meant for him. And why? Well, because the wages of sin is death. And he was vicariously Taking sin upon himself in the place of those who trust in him. Why did he die? Because the soul that sinneth it shall die. This is the penalty for our sins. And so he took that upon himself. And it is a severe penalty. Death is a severe penalty. In fact, all the aspects of death, because of course physical death is not the end of it. But it is a severe penalty. And that is to teach us of the magnitude of our offense against God. The severity of the penalty for our sins should show us, number one, the greatness of the one that we have sinned against, and number two, the seriousness of our sins, the greatness of our offenses against God. The penalty is great because our sin has been against the greatest being in all the universe. The penalty is great because our sin is against the one who brought us into being, who gave us life, and who sustains our lives. The penalty is great because of the greatness of the God that we have offended. The penalty is great because of the seriousness of the sin that we have committed. And therefore, whenever we are tempted to think lightly of our sins, to minimize them, To generalize them, we need to be reminded of the greatness of the penalty that a holy God has imposed against them and be dislodged of our erroneous thoughts and realize how serious is the offense of our sin against God. This is also to tell us that before we can ever truly benefit from the good news of the gospel, we have to understand the bad news of the penalty for our sins. And the bad news is that we have sinned and that the judgment, the just judgment for sin, is death. In fact, the just penalty for our sins is so severe that it will ultimately utterly destroy us because we are not able to bear up under this penalty. This judgment is so great that it will crush us down into eternal damnation and continue to crush us under that load of the penalty for all eternity. And that is a destruction that is even worse than being obliterated, being wiped out of existence And again, the penalty is so severe because of the greatness of our sin. Don't lose sight of that. This shows us how heinous our sin is, how great our crimes are against God. But the good news is that Christ bore the penalty for sins in the place of sinners. Sinners just like me. Sinners just like you. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to save men and women and boys and girls from the just condemnation due unto our sins. And the good news is that all who come to Christ, everyone without exception, all who come to Christ, have the penalty of their sins paid for for Christ forever. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The penalty in Christ is satisfied in full forever for all of those who come to Christ in repentance and faith. And so the question for some of you today is, what is keeping you from coming to Christ? Is it your love of sin? Dear friend, please understand that in the day of judgment, which is appointed to all of us, the pleasures and the... the, the desire that you've had for your sin, the enjoyment of your sin, will seem like absolutely nothing and the heinousness of the penalty of your sin is going to loom so large in that day. You will you will hate yourself for choosing sin. You will wonder why you ever pursued sin. You will wonder why you ever rejected a gracious God and a gracious Savior to desire your sins more than Christ. You will recognize your folly in that day may God help you to recognize it now before that day that you might renounce your sin and come to Christ what is keeping you from coming to Christ is that your fear of the reproach of Christ that there are many in our day who hate Christ exactly as the Bible tells us and that many will mock those who are Christians and will make things hard for you if you are known to be a Christian. Is it your fear of the reproach of Christ that keeps you from coming to Christ? And if that be the case, I remind you, that's just another manifestation of sin. That's pride, the root of all of our sins. And Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty for that sin too, the pride that drives us to so many other sins. But, dear friend, you must allow your pride to be humbled and you must come to Christ embracing the reproach of Christ, the reproach of the cross, if you would have the penalty for your sin to be paid by him. What is keeping you from coming to Christ? Is it your uncertainty of being accepted by him? Are you afraid of coming to him and then being turned away? Well, there are many promises in God's word that tell you that is not so. Jesus said, him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Do not fear rejection by him. He is the one person in all the world that you can be absolutely certain that if you come to him, he will not reject you. Don't allow that to keep you away. Are you failing to come to Christ because of your inability to believe in Him? If that is what you are feeling, I tell you in the first place that you are correct in your assessment. In yourself, you do not have that ability. But I will tell you again that all the need that He requires, or all the, all the fitness He requires, is to feel your need of Him. If you feel your need of a Savior... Then go to him. He will give you the faith to believe. Of course you don't have the ability to believe in yourself. But if you feel the weight of your sin, if you feel your desperation, if you feel your need of a Savior, if you feel that your sins are dooming you to utter destruction, if you feel the, the, the chains of your sin, the bondage of your sin, and you would be free from the burden of your sin, then go to Christ and He will give you everything you need to stand in God's presence in that great day and to hear the word justified. Justified. Your sins are paid for. There is no condemnation to all who are in Christ Jesus. Let nothing keep you from coming to Christ. But as we move from the penalty that was satisfied, we come to the accomplishment that was certified. For we read, Christ also suffered once for sins. And emphasize that word once. Once for sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. And so, again, in reference to this thought, there are two words or phrases in our text that talk about the accomplishment that was certified. And the first one is the finality of Christ's sacrifice, and the second one is the certification of satisfied justice. The finality of Christ's sacrifice. Christ also suffered How many times for sins? One time. Once. And that's important. This phrase means he suffered once, and that suffering was of perpetual validity, not requiring repetition. Now that, of course, is in contrast with the Jewish sacrifices in the Old Testament. One of the most important, one of the most obvious features of those sacrifices is their constant repetition again and again and again and again. That was true of all of the sacrifices. That was even true of the great sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, which maybe most closely corresponds to Christ's death upon the cross, though it's true that Christ's death corresponds to all of the Old Testament sacrifices, and all of them point to Him. But again, that Day of Atonement... When the high priest went one time a year back into the Holy of Holies behind the veil and sprinkled the blood of the sacrifice upon the mercy seat and thereby obtained atonement for the covenant people of God for one more year, held off the judgment of God, the just and deserved judgment of God for one more year. But that day of atonement rolled around again, and he had to do it again. And the day of atonement rolled around again, and he had to do it again. And every year that sacrifice was repeated again and again and again and again. How many times did the Old Testament priest make sacrifice for sin? You can't count them all. How many times did the high priest make sacrifice for sin on the day of atonement? For as many years as that practice went on, again and again and again and again. But Christ is in contrast to all of that. Let me read a few verses out of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 9.24. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Or hear the words of Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 10. For by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Or verse 14. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Do you see how regularly the scriptures emphasize this one-time aspect of the death of Christ. Christ died once because it only took one sacrifice by Christ to truly and eternally accomplish the payment of sins for all men. His sacrifice was sufficient to pay the penalty for the sins of all men, and sin's full penalty at that. The Old Testament sacrifices were merely types and symbols. They pointed to something else. It was not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. That was a temporary arrangement that was was devised to preach the gospel ahead of the coming of Christ. To show men on the other side of the cross what is necessary to take away sins And the blood of bulls and goats can't do it. And the very repetition was the thing that certified that. The repetition of the Old Testament sacrifices was a perpetual testimony of their inadequacy. Morning sacrifices. Evening sacrifices. Sin offerings. Trespass offerings. All kinds of offerings. The great day of atonement offerings. Again and again and again and again. And every time a sacrifice in the Old Testament was repeated, it was testifying to its inadequacy to deal fully with the penalty and guilt of sin. But the finality of Christ's sacrifice is the testimony of its efficacy. The fact that when God was dealing with sin in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, He died upon the cross once is testimony to the fact that one death by Christ on the cross is fully sufficient to deal with the penalty of sin in all of its penalty forever. And that's what Christ was saying when on the cross he cried, It is finished. That's probably what the songwriter is trying to get against get get across when he says once for all O sinner receive it. Once for all, O brother, believe it. Cling to the cross, the burden will fall. Christ hath redeemed us once for all the finality of Christ's sacrifice, but secondly we see the certification of satisfied justice. And now our focus begins to move to the resurrection of Christ. That's part of it, too. Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. Put to death, yes, but made alive. And the resurrection is the certification of the Father's satisfaction with the Christ, with the Son's sacrifice. We see that, I think, given to us in Romans chapter 4. When we read this, Romans chapter 4, verse 24, but also for us, it will be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus, our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. We believe in God the Father who imputed our sins to Christ and Christ died to pay the penalty for them, but he was raised again by the Father for our justification. His resurrection from the dead was the certification that his death had paid the full penalty. And he now is, as it were, stamping the receipt paid in full. The resurrection from the dead demonstrates that the Father received the Son's sacrifice and that he considered it payment in full. It's interesting that the Bible in various places attributes the resurrection of Christ to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit. The triune Godhead was all involved in the resurrection of Christ. Really, nothing strange about that. But we are also reminded, therefore, that the resurrection of Christ is an integral part of the gospel, just as his death is. We said to you last Sunday that an understanding of man's sin is an integral part of the gospel. And we cannot minimize that. We cannot lightly gloss that over or we have not truly preached the gospel. And likewise, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is an integral part of the gospel. When Paul was giving just the very barest summary of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, he said, For I deliver to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. There's the gospel in its barest bones the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for our sins. And you can preach the whole gospel when you put those things together. There it is. And the resurrection is an important part of the gospel. Now we need to understand something of the nature of this resurrection. Christ was resurrected to die no more, which makes his resurrection unique up until this point in history. It is unlike all other resurrections. We do read about some others in the Bible who were raised back to life after they died, some in the Old Testament, some in the New. Lazarus is an example in the New Testament. But you see, the fact of the matter is Lazarus had to die again. He was given life to live a few more years upon the earth, Mary and Martha were greatly comforted by having their brother back for a few more years, but Lazarus also had to go through death twice. And Mary and Martha had to go through two funerals for their brother. Maybe if they had known all that, they wouldn't have wouldn't have been so so uh determined so 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 pleading that that uh, Lazarus should be raised but that's the fact. Jesus Christ is the first person who rose from the dead never to die again. He is called elsewhere the first fruits of resurrection. That is the first fruits of the whole um doctrine of resurrection, the first fruits of the of the uh, company who shall be raised to eternal life. He's the first one and he goes before. And because he's the first fruits, others will surely follow. Jesus Christ is resurrected to eternal, glorified life, unlike Lazarus or unlike any of the others who were raised to earthly life, to live a few more years upon the earth and then to die again. But Jesus Christ, when he was raised, he was raised not to return to the life that he had before the cross, but rather to his eternal glorified life. After he was resurrected, he ascended back to heaven in the body that was raised from the dead. Now, Paul tells us plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, if we had read on, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. These bodies that we have can't go to heaven. They have to be changed. Christ was changed. He came out of the tomb with a glorified body. He came out of, tomb, out of the tomb, and listen to this term because it's going to become more important in a moment. He came out of the tomb with a spiritual body. Does that mean that he didn't have substance, that you couldn't touch him? No, you could. And we need to adjust our thinking of what it means to have a spiritual body or to be a spiritual body. We think of things spiritual as being intangible. But that evidently is not true. Christ came out of the tomb with a spiritual body, which means he had a body that was fully capable of entering into all things that pertain to heaven and to the spiritual realm. He was perfectly suited for that, unlike our earthly bodies, which are totally unsuited for that. And that's the way Christ was resurrected, to die no more. And he was resurrected to eternal glorified life, and he was resurrected to conquer death. In other words, his resurrection did not simply overcome his own individual death. It did that, of course. But his resurrection was far more than that. He was resurrected to conquer death's power, death's dominion, death's ability to bring others under the power and dominion of death. He conquered that forever. He destroyed the power of death when He died and rose from the dead. And what are we talking about? We're talking about the accomplishment of the cross, the accomplishment that was certified, the accomplishment that was certified by His dying once For all, it certifies the efficacy of his death, the accomplishment that was certified by his resurrection, which demonstrates the father's full satisfaction of his payment for the full penalty for sin and demonstrates his power over death. Therefore, he can give eternal life to all who trust in him. He can sustain and guarantee eternal life. To all who trust in him, his resurrection from the dead certifies that for us. So that brings us thirdly to consider the reconciliation that was accomplished. We continue looking at our text. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And now this phrase, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive by the Spirit. And here we're going to see the reversal of sin's alienation and the removal of sin's demarcation. But you'll have to follow me carefully. That he might bring us to God. Through sin, I must deal with that part first, and then I'll get to put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That he might bring us to God. Through sin, we were estranged. We were alienated from God. These are terms that we need to understand. Alienation is the counterpart of reconciliation. We talk about Christ reconciling sinners to the Father. What is He doing? He's reversing the alienation, which was ours. Through sin, we were estranged from God. We were Alienated from God. What does that mean? Well, that indicates our distance from God. We were not close to Him. We were far from Him. Far, far from God. It means we were ignorant of God's character and will. We did not know Him. We did not understand Him. We did not understand who He was. We did not understand what He wanted, what He desires, what He requires of mankind. And even worse than that, we were at enmity with him. We were we were in rebellion against him. We had no favorable relationship with him at all. No fellowship with him at all. We were at war with God. All of that is wrapped up in this idea of alienation. But Christ is dealing with all of that. He did what he did, dying on the cross and rising in again from the dead, that he might bring us to God, that he might overcome this alienation, this estrangement. And through Christ we have been reconciled to God. That, as much as anything, is what is being pictured by the rending of the temple veil when Christ died on the cross. When he died, as we know, that huge veil, which we are told was about a foot thick in the temple, was, was huge. I don't know how they ever managed to get it up into position and had to take some kind of machinery to do that, some kind of uh, um, pulleys and levers and, and uh, some kind of equipment to get that into place. There's no way that, that uh, men could do that. But that temple was completely torn from top to bottom. Nobody could have torn it, it from any direction. No man, no, no, a team of ele- elephants probably could have done that. But For it to be torn from top to bottom, of course, demonstrates it was done divinely. It was torn from top to bottom, and what it did was expose the way into the Holy of Holies, which up until that time had been carefully guarded. Man couldn't get near to God. Why? Because we are estranged. We are alienated. And this was a picture of that. All of this is preaching the gospel in the Old Testament. This is a picture of that. So how... Are sinful men going to be brought near to God? Only through the work of Christ on the cross. He's the only one who can do it. And when he died on the cross, that temple was torn from top to bottom. And the way into the presence of God was now made open and accessible to sinners who come through the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ brought us into the favorable presence of God. There is a sense, of course, in which we are never out of the presence of God, for God is omnipresent. I cannot hide from God. But in my enmity, I am not in the favorable presence of God. I am distant from Him. I am cast out from Him. I am in the realm of darkness. I am in the kingdom of, of Satan. I am at enmity. I am at war with God. But Christ, by his work on the cross, as it were, has reached out now and taken us by the hand, out of enemy territory, and he brings us by the hand right into the presence of the thrice holy God where none dare to go unless he has has an advocate like this at his side one who has bled and died and provided for his presence there. And Jesus Christ takes us right into the presence of the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the thrice holy God, and he introduces us to the Father and says, Father, this is Craig Barkman. I died for him. He's now one of yours. And he invites me to have fellowship with God. He brings us to God. out of hostile enemy territory into God's presence, introduced to the king that we had offended and should have been cut off from forever. But now we take up, secondly, the removal of sin's demarcation. And now we take up being put to death in the flesh but being made alive by the Spirit. Again, our text, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. And this is how he brings us to God. Now, this phrase, being put to death in the flesh but being made alive by the Spirit, does have some aspects that we're going to have to wrestle with a bit. The first question might be, should the prepositions be translated in or by? In my version, it says, being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. But those Two prepositions are the same in the Greek language. And it is legitimate to translate either of them in or by. Those are legitimate translations. But the question is, which is the correct one here? And the other question is, should the word spirit be small s or capital S? Are we talking about the Holy Spirit or are we talking about the spirit in some other sense? Well, I would like to argue strongly that the word By should be translated in, in both places. Being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the spirit. Now, there are more reasons for that than I have time to explain now, but just take my word for it and study after me, if you will, please. And learn that the Greek parallelism in this phrase is so strong, so obvious in the original Greek, in a far more obvious way than we see it in the English that it almost demands that whichever way you translate one preposition, you translate the other one the same way. Yes, it's true that if you're just looking at the word by itself, isolated, it can be translated either in or by, but the whole construction means that whichever way you translate one, you should translate the other. Now, with that in mind, you realize that it really doesn't make much sense to say that he was put to death by the flesh, because it's talking about his flesh. You say, well, it means he was put to death by other men, but that's really not what it's saying. It's talking about his flesh. So it makes no sense to say he was put to death by his flesh. So we have to translate both of them the other way, in, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. Now, when we translate it that way, it does appear that the word spirit is probably small caps. Again, we could make it large, but really it fits better now to make it small. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And what this is saying is, he was put to death in the realm of the flesh. He was made alive in the realm of the Spirit. What is that all about? Okay, listen to me. I think this is what Peter's saying. Adam's sin caused an unnatural breach between flesh and spirit, between the earthly and the heavenly, between the physical and the spiritual, between the creature and the creator. In God's universe, before sin, everything was a unified whole. There wasn't this demarcation between flesh and spirit, between earthly and heavenly, between physical and spiritual, between creature and creator, Though there always, of course, will be a distance between creature and creator, but not the great demarcation that sin brought. Adam's sin caused that. So what did Christ do? This now touches back again upon that great wonder of the incarnation. What did Christ do? Well, Christ in the incarnation crossed over from the spiritual realm to the fleshly realm. God, of course... He's in the realm of the Spirit. Again, he's omnipresent, he's in everything, but in the sin, he's he's not in the the realm of sin in the same way. There's an alienation that has taken place here. So Christ crossed over from the spiritual realm to the fleshly realm. He left the spiritual realm and he took upon him human flesh and became a part of the fleshly realm for his thirty three years upon the earth. What next? Christ dealt with the power of sin by vicariously taking it unto himself and absorbing its full penalty. Christ dealt with the power of sin, which is has to do with the fleshly realm where sin exists, where sin dwells, and where sin is under the condemnation of this penalty. That all has to do with the realm of the flesh, not the realm of the spirit. And Christ dealt with the power of sin by vicariously taking it unto himself and absorbing its full penalty. Once he had done that, what did he do? He crossed back over into the realm of the Spirit, leading many sons with him. That's what he did. That's another way of looking at what Christ did. He left the realm of the Spirit, crossed over into the realm of the flesh, dealt with the sin that had caused the realm of the flesh to be alienated from the Father to cause this curse to come upon physical creation, to cause this estrangement, this alienation, which not only pertains to sinners but in some way pertains to all the physical creation. He dealt with it fully and completely in the flesh. And then having dealt with it, he rose from the dead. And in his glorified body, he crossed back over into the realm of the Spirit. And he took many sons to glory with him, taking us out of the realm of the flesh. And depositing us into the realm of the Spirit. Maybe that's what Paul is saying when he quotes from the Psalms in Ephesians 4.8. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. Maybe that's what the writer of Hebrews is getting at when he says in Hebrews 2.10, For it was fitting for him for whom all things, or whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. You know, this is really exciting when you begin to get a hold of it. Christ's death addressed the effects of the curse, and he reconciled all of creation back to God. That's why Paul says this in Romans 8:19, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 40, or 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. What do you mean until now, Paul? Isn't it still going on? Well, the power has already been broken until now. Christ died on the cross and He took care of it. Now He'll come back the second time to claim it, but He's already taken care of it. And please understand that Christ's resurrection completed the work of redemption upon the cross and certified the triumph. His redemptive victory was not complete until the resurrection. Because by the res- resurrection, Christ passed, now back from the realm of the flesh into a new and fuller life, previously by by design and by his voluntary incarnation, he had brought himself into the limits of physical existence for 33 years. But now he moves back into the realm of the spirit, back into the freedom of the spiritual mode of existence, so that even though he is in a body, his body is not confining to him in any way. It's a glorified body and he has as much freedom as he had before he was incarnated in the virgin's womb. He, we saw some examples of that in the post-resurrection appearances of Christ coming through a door that was closed or a wall that was closed and his ability to to uh, travel anywhere in the universe in an instance. He passed back from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the spirit, but he did so in this body that still, it's a human body now glorified. Still, it still bears the marks of the crucifixion. It is his body, it's, and that's the certification that he will do the same for us. And in doing this, he takes with him many, many sons, all who believe in Jesus Christ. He takes all of them to glory with him. We're going to enjoy the same Realm, the, the glories of this same incredible spiritual realm that Christ passed back into. When passing back into that realm, He now opened the way for us to pass into that realm, and we shall. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And strength of sin is the law, but thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory in Christ Jesus. Well, I will read six statements by way of conclusion. I'll try not to comment on them at all. Just read them. They all deserve elaboration, but this will be my conclusion. In all of this, we have some lessons about the gospel. What are they? Number one, the gospel is bigger and fuller than we at first realize Number two, the gospel demands study and meditation for enlarged understanding. Number three, to preach the gospel regularly is not simply to repeat the surface concepts again and again, as some do in their attempts to evangelize. But number four, to preach the gospel regularly is to examine different aspects constantly, to consider new angles and facets. When you preach and study the gospel like this, it never becomes boring. Number five, believers need to constantly review the truths of the gospel to grow in their understanding of the gospel and their application of the gospel to their own lives. And number six, the preaching of the gospel is designed by God to meet the deepest needs of both saint and unbeliever. May God apply it to every need today, shall we pray. O Lord Jesus, how we thank you. How we marvel, how our minds are stretched and our souls are enlarged as we consider more and more of what you have done upon the cross. By your spirit, O oh Lord, apply these truths to every heart. Cause your people to understand and rejoice and live in the strength and the power and the glory and the light of such a great gospel. Cause, O oh Lord, those who are yet outside of Christ to understand their need and to desire Christ more than their sin, and to come to Him for cleansing and eternal salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.